Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. On this episode, I've got Dr. Jean Hébert at the Einstein College of Medicine in New York and a conversation that will literally regenerate your mind by the time you get through it. One of the longevity researchers that's working on in a field where it's all cutting edge, one of the most unbelievable sets of technologies that I heard about. I mean, that he's literally growing brain cells and attaching them to living brains to replace organs as they fail. Let's hear about it. John, tell us, you know, how did you get to the Bronx? It doesn't sound like a typical New York name. When I was a little kid, I kind of knew I wanted to do what I'm doing today, which was a long time ago. So I've been on the path to the Bronx since then. I just sort of realized that we're machines. We break down, we get old, we die. And I thought we should do something about that. So I started studying biology in high school as an extracurricular activity, not, you know, as part of courses or anything, just so I could learn more. And really thought genetics would be the way to go, right? Because it's the code of life. If that can't fix who we are, then what can? I went to college first in Montreal, but did my PhD at UCSF in genetics, but also how the body developed. So I thought stem cells would be a good way to go in terms of regenerative medicine, in terms of repairing things. And maybe we can control that with genes. So that was the first idea I had. Um, so I got my PhD um, studying how we go from a single cell to like a whole person during development and sort of the genetics of that. But then realized, you know, that's much too complex. Like there are many different cell types, many different parts of the body that we need to address to fix the whole body. So I thought, let me just focus on the most important part of the body which is the neocortex as a cognitive neuroscientist you would so i studied how the cortex develops uh, with the idea of being able to repair it with new cells new tissues and been working on that ever since now at a point where um we want to start translating this to treat initially things like local damage due to stroke or trauma but with the intent always of applying it more generally to the neocortex, the rest of the brain, and in combination with the rest of the body to reverse aging. That's where I'm at now is taking steps towards getting this used in humans. Okay, so I, uh, I won't take the bait, Jean. You gave a, a sweeping story that takes you from poutine in Montreal to the most elite neuroscience laboratories in the world. Let's just go for the brain and forget about some of these early dalliances that you had with um, cellular repair or whatever it was that was distracting you with genes. I mean, here in the brain, where I would probably agree with you, I mean, I suppose most people's conception of self is their intellectual, emotional, cognitive faculties. And if that was the only thing you preserved, like the cryonics people, you'd think you'd more or less preserved what mattered. Right. And, you know, when people think about helpful aging, they're probably more intent on protecting their brain and mind than they are on any individual limb, for example, or how wrinkly their skin is. So that seems to be very certain central to people's notion of self. However, 
in the landscape of aging and folks who work on longevity or anti-aging or however you might describe the field, it does make you a little bit peculiar, right? I mean, it's a, it's a particular territory in the world of aging. There's a lot of folks that are way down and focus just on cells or just on epigenetics or on certain other systems, which are the largest causes of mortality. You know, certain people now that we live so long, um, I guess, you know, uh, diseases of the, of the central nervous system are one of the big contributors, but they're not number one. People die of cardiovascular and all that. So help us situate for a second before we zoom straight into to the brain and neuroscience where you stand in contrast, perhaps, to some of the rest of the field. I am a bit of an outsider in the sense that the approach that I'm suggesting is generally different. It's more along the lines of regenerative medicine than most of the longevity field. It's also, like you say, focused on the brain and really reversing damage, not so much only healthy aging, which I think we can accomplish by tackling specific diseases that you alluded to, cardiovascular disease, circulatory or heart attacks are included in that, diabetes. So a lot of diseases that I think the longevity field is focusing on will allow us to, on average, live longer, healthier lives, but will not address aging per se. You know, we'll be healthier old people and getting older, which is better than having disease, right? So that's good. But I really come at it from a point that I think we can beat aging. Only way I think we can beat aging is not by tackling the hundreds of forms of macromolecular damage that accumulate over time, which require inventing new machinery to reverse that. It's instead by tissue replacements, and which works conceptually fine for most of the body. It's problematic for the brain, in particular, hmm. the neocortex. You know, I really, I wouldn't say clash. Well, diverging, I mean, there are plenty of hot wars in the world of aging where people are shouting at each other, but maybe diverging. Yeah, yeah. And I like what they're doing. I think we have to be careful of the language that we use in describing what we're addressing, whether it's really aging or is it an age-related disease. It is true. A lot of folks are trying to solve diseases that'll kill you. And, you know, they call that longevity because you live an extra 10 years on average or five or whatever vaccines. Are vaccines solving aging? No, they're solving a form of mortality with, you know, especially children, right? You must mean by aging is not merely surviving longer. You must mean the collection of phenomena that are the deterioration of what you would consider your true self or something. What do you mean by aging? That's a good definition because it applies especially well to the brain because that's, you know, where your true self resides mostly. But I really view aging as this accumulation of damage that is sort of undeniable. It's been documented for decades. It's very complex. It occurs to DNA. It occurs to proteins. It occurs to lipids carbohydrates. And if you want to tackle aging, you have to address this damage one way or another, you know, regardless of what theory you of aging you, you know, subscribe to. If you're not going to reverse that damage, you're not going to stop aging. Okay, so that's the car, right? That's the banged up car that gets old. That's the Aubrey de Grey kind of ultra oversimplified. But what's the theory of aging you subscribe to? What's your map for that? not necessarily to have you espouse. You just briefly mentioned what theory that you... So there, there are different schools, aren't there? 
And that's probably where some of the warring factions are. Some of them are like there is a pre-programmed senescence that goes on at the, you know, animal level or at the cellular level. There's damage accumulating, which is stochastic and probabilistic. And what else is there? I don't ascribe to a theory because I don't think we need a theory. We know that this damage, DNA damage by itself, can cause what looks like aging. We know that protein damage itself can cause, you know, what looks like aging, including uh, basically all the hallmarks, which are, you know, manifestations, I think, of this damage. You know, we have enough evidence that supports that, that I don't see the purpose of a theory at this point. Okay. Yeah. So it's a very pragmatic, it's like, look, you see what's going wrong. Let's address that. And it's measurable. Your version of aging, when we tried that like sample definition of the deterioration of the collection of phenomena that would make the self, I guess. If that's like the symptom we're trying to go tackle. I mean, and given that you work on the brain, I mean, you measure, can you give an age? Is there a clock? Like, what are the biomarkers? Yeah, I mean, that could be useful. I mean, people have tried to measure it. You know, the epigenetic age is a real popular one, although it's really unclear yet whether it really reflects aging in the sense that if you reverse the epigenetic landscape, do you reverse aging? There's no evidence that it's positive, in fact. There's good evidence that it's not, but there are other clocks as well that could be used. I think they're more difficult. For example, the extracellular matrix is probably the area that accumulates the most damage over time because some proteins don't turn over at all during our lifetime. Some turn over very slowly and some turn over until they're damaged and then they can't get turned over anymore. And so you have this mess of damage accumulating outside of cells that affects their epigenome, affects their function in general. And that damage is, you know, not easy to measure. You have to do extracellular proteomics, mass spec, and it's the damage is uh, stochastic in nature and it's non-enzymatic. And so it makes it very difficult to measure that as a form of damage. So we are looking into sort of ways of assessing it uh, just pathologically. For example, light penetrance would be a very straightforward physical way where if the more aggregates and disorganized biological structures you have, the more diffraction you get, right? And that's what occurs with aging. If you look sections of old brains under a microscope, they look horrible. And they just pass through more light. I mean, I perhaps this is ridiculous, but it does seem to me that very old skin seems a bit more translucent than other skin. I mean, for the brain, at least fluorescently, there's just a lot of diffraction. So, you know, it's hard to get clean signals for any marker in an old brain compared to a young brain. And when I say old, I mean, this happens very progressively over time. The effects may not be noticeable until we're much older, but the ability to see that deterioration starts very early in life. And it's observable, perhaps, in you know, this like sort of physical phenotypic manifestation. But then I guess, you know, we most often worry about all the cognitive and emotional changes that are psychologically observable, right? Yeah. The behavior just changes, and these are correlated with aging. You may be aware of studies, too, uh, comparing using functional MRI, routine functions of older adults versus young adults, where in young adults, it's still very much compartmentalized in the neocortex, but in Older adults, they use wider and wider areas of their neocortex to perform regular tasks. So there's a need for new substrate because it's deteriorating. So because the brain is very plastic in how it functions, 
it's going to take up as much space as you need for whatever you're using most, right? At the expense eventually of other things. Oh, well, that particular explanation, the why that you just gave is not something that I've run across in the past, right? I mean, I've, I've heard other speculative explanations that, you know, as folks age, there's just more time for all these interconnections and you're sort of recruiting all the different physical areas into some of these like higher order faculties, but you're describing it more as like your vision system can no longer pull it off with that spoonful over there in V2. And now it's needing to go use some other <laughs> area to, that's moonlighting. The areas for given tasks are tend to be broader for an old person than a young person for tasks that they use routinely, right? Those are the ones that are maintained over time. Okay, so these are some of the ways to see the differences between what we might characterize as an older brain and a younger brain or aged. Or, and this is the phenomenon of aging, I suppose, that you're working on, right? So that version of aging, it's not merely about years of life and mortality. You're thinking more about the healthy function. How do you extend that? And um, we've been talking about measurement. And um, it seems to me that the work that you have dedicated yourself to is not, not about measurement, but more about some sorts of interventions or therapeutics that might create difference in behavior. So talk to us about that. And, and you also mentioned tissue tissue replacement, which I didn't double click on when we passed over that, you know, because you might measure, imagine tissue replacement as Dr. Frankenstein and just like the wholesale replacement, you might think about it as regeneration. And so let's get into this topic. Yeah, the measuring part is anecdotal. We haven't even published anything on that. The tissue replacement is the, the important thing and what we really work on. And again, that's because even replacing cells won't be enough, right? Because of the extracellular environment that they're in, that also has to be replaced. So tissues, I think, will need to be replaced. And the challenge for the brain is you can't replace the whole organ like you can for a heart or lungs or kidneys. Well, I mean, you're loath to even entertain the comparison to that famous movie and the book, but like the visualization in the movie from the whatever, whether it's the 50s or the 60s is like, I mean, they do replace the whole brain in the fantasy of, <laughs> of Dr. Frankenstein. Maybe it's not practical with current technology. I think if you're replacing a whole brain, what you're actually doing is the whole body transplant. <laughs> you're replacing the whole body. Yeah. Yeah. It's a perspective, I guess. You're maintained, you have a new body, but you're still the same person. In principle, it can be done progressively, right? Again, because of the enormous plasticity with which the brain works normally. The neocortex has evolved to be plastic and adaptable so that we can learn new things. We forget things if we don't use them. And Functions can move from one place to another in the neocortex. And my favorite example, because I think it's very illustrative, is language in humans of advanced age can move when the original language center is slowly destroyed due to a benign glioma, for example. So over the course of several years, this glioma will grow and eat away at the language center. But during that time, the individuals keep talking because that's what people do. And because that function is needed, because it's being used, it gets re-encoded uh, progressively in other parts of the neocortex. Yeah, so this is something that happens only with the slow destruction. So if you compare those patients with the same amount of damage, so eventually they take out the tumor with surrounding tissue for good measure, and those individuals can still talk, even though there's a hole in their neocortex where the language center used to be. If the same amount of damage happens to the same aged individuals, Due to a stroke, for example, there's very little recovery of language because there was no time for plasticity to move that to another part of the brain. So it's not a quick process, but if you do it at the right rate, 
and sort of slowly silence parts of the neocortex as you integrate new, you know, sort of tabula rasa tissue that can start encoding function. Is there really tabula rasa stuff just sitting around? Not just sitting around, God, I wish, but... Uh, You're recruiting it from some other job, presumably. This is what we're doing in the lab. We're engineering... But you're doing. Yeah, yeah, very immature neocortical tissue, sort of mid-gestation stage neocortical tissue. And we're selecting that age because of the fairly abundant literature now on transplantation of very immature uh, precursors or immature neurons of just how well they integrate into existing adult uh, circuits and tissue. But of course, what people have done so far is with single cell types, like the principal neurons of the neocortex that are excitatory and project long distances without providing interneurons or you know, even their support cells. So this is you know, clearly not functional uh, form of replacement yet, but that's our goal. That's what we're working on is to provide an immature tissue that you transplant surgically will then mature in a way that it can absorb function or re-encode a function for the individual in a useful way. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person as an academic, as a student. And then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who wanna build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we wanna survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really wanna unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. That's amazing. So I guess unlike other tissue in the body, the, uh, the plasticity of the cell comes from its natural function when it is mature, in a sense, like the job of a neuron is to be pretty plastic. If I was trying to fix, you know, somebody's whatever kidney or pancreas, I'd have to put in a, a younger, like pluripotent stem cell or something and have it sort of start specializing later. And so you have like a special situation up there. If you were to put in far too young a cell, perhaps it would develop in the wrong way and not be re- recruited to the right function. Yeah. So what we need to do, our challenge is to put together all the different precursor cell types in the right ratio at the right relative maturity states and in the right cytoarchitecture. So even the precursor cells during development are layered. They're not just all mixed together. We need to have the right cytoarchitecture and we're you know, going so far as to try to put them in the right extracellular matrix that mimics sort of a mid-gestation fetal neocortex so that they'll develop normally and integrate normally with surrounding tissue. 
again, because the neocortex is a competitive environment, you know, you'll use it for what you need it, whatever you're learning at the time. Oh, and you'll have to create some kind of deficit or some kind of, I don't know exactly who's in charge up there of where the cells get recruited to work, but you'd have to somehow direct the development of those cells towards the target. It'll be use dependent, right? So at the same time, in a stepwise manner, maybe, you know, it'll take six to 10 steps of replacement, but at the same time, we'll be silencing, you know, one or two areas functional areas of the neocortex slowly over time while the individual keeps using those functions. So just like the example of the benign glioma that takes years to develop, you know, we're going to experimentally silence tissue while the individual uses those functions so that they get re-encoded. Training them, yeah. But silencing a brain area, I mean, I guess in some of your experimental models with mice and stuff, you're just using some kind of chemical insult or, or some kind of intervention like that. There's different ways you could do it. it. Might even be physical ways like temperature or, but the best way seems to be optogenetically with a laser start with a pinpoint silencing, you know, basically one neuron, if you want, and expanding that out to, you know, a couple of centimeters over the course of months. And with deep shifted red laser light, you could get all the layers of the cortex without being intracranial. You might have to thin the cranium a little bit. But maybe technology will get a little better in a few years and we won't need to do that either. But then, you know, you can progressively silence, like if you want, the language center over time, just like the benign glioma did. First of all, you're synthesizing a wide variety of, of brain cells, not just neurons, but all the other stuff you need to work together as like a little module. It's a pretty complex architecture, apparently. It's not like a spoonful of liver is just a spoonful of liver. It's like all these layers, there's all these interconnections, and they actually adopt that structure in the brain. So you got to put in these layers, you got to synthesize them, then you got to put them in step by step. You can't put in too much. You're putting them into a brain that in advance was like a genetically modified organism so that those parts of the brain were optogenetically modified. So they respond to light. So you'll be able to do some knockouts once you get some stuff in there. In humans, we can't do that. Obviously, we can't. No, of course not. You're in a mouse model for now, right? Just to prove the thing works. So once you get this thing added in there, you're going to disable some other part of the brain. And then you're going to try to train that mouse to do whatever it's supposed to be doing, running or sensing. And that training is going to start recruiting this other part of the brain. And then you'll do some MRIs or something to see if that new part of the brain is actually actively engaged when it's performing the task. So all these things have to work right. The preclinical models will be technically a little bit different than the human models, some for obvious reasons, because we don't genetically modify humans. And certainly fully made humans, that would be very difficult. In humans, for the progressive silencing optogenetically, we'd have to virally deliver with like an AAV the red shifted uh, silencers, channel silencers that exist. So that would be how we would deliver that. And then once that tissue was completely silenced and was electrophysiologically inactive, still metabolically alive, we could remove it without any consequence to the cognitive state of the individual. I mean, but the order of difficulty of the stuff that you're doing, your lab must be full of mechanical and electrical engineers and hackers and hobbyists and like former astronauts and chemists. Like you don't have just a bunch of your standard variety MDs that decided to come be in your neuroscience. It's hugely multidisciplinary. Much of that right now is through collaborations with other labs. So it's not within our group. So we have electrophysiologists, computational biologists, systems neuroscientists, stem cell biologists for different cell types that we need for the brain, T 
tissue engineer, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some. So yeah, it's hugely multidisciplinary. And the goal, you know, what we're trying for right now is to bring everybody together, working on this full time rather than with these collaborations, which are, you know, tend to be individuals lending some of their time to this project and doing something else as their main focus. So that's our challenge right now. We're, we've lined up some funding. So hopefully once that kicks in, we can bring people under the same roof working on this because yes, this is picture the Houston operational center for Apollo. You know, you need a huge team like this to be able yeah. to do this in a reasonable amount of time. Well, so let me explore this a little further now with you. I want to take some bigger leaps away from the present towards where we might find ourselves. I suppose the strategy that you're describing is something that is kind of, it's live and in action with some of the simpler organs, right? Like if you've got a problem with your kidneys or your liver or your pancreas or something, there's some folks that are building twins and putting some cells somewhere else and getting you to have an extra liver somewhere because your original one is failing. And I don't know where, I mean, it probably doesn't matter really where your liver is. So if it's in your elbow or in your thigh or something, it seems to work as, as well. I mean, that's my understanding. I hope I'm not far off. That's roughly the family, right? My uh, understanding of biology is, you know, somewhat reasonably. It ends at the neck. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I do know about the sort of the ectopic kidney-like structures that function even though they're not in the usual place. The liver, I hadn't heard that, but yeah, why not? Who knows? Maybe, yeah, I mean, I might not even be remembering correctly. My expertise is very limited. So sure, like creating a, an organ twin, I suppose, and then, you know, extending that thought experiment to just do it for the brain, why not? I mean, we care a lot about it, especially if it can steadily migrate. I mean, it takes me to the thought of um, the role of, uh, of digital and um, brain-computer interfaces and other kind of scaffolding, because you know, there are mechanical assistance that we've been providing to the body for a long time. In the case of insulin, for example, you'd have an insulin pump and it helps you do your thing. And I suppose we're getting to the moment now where people are finding certain really specific little things that maybe can assist the, the human brain in its function, or at least in mice, we've been able to somehow, I don't know, support memory or, or learning. So talk to me a little bit about that. And I'm sure people ask you all the time, because here you are, synthesizing brain material from scratch. And then these computer guys all want to come and say it's easy to do, so it, do it with computers. But perhaps you can help me understand the connection. I know there's a lot of interest in uh, sort of migrating who we are from a biological substrate eventually to a completely synthetic one, which sounds great. One day I will probably get there assuming you know humanity doesn't destroy itself first but i think we're still technically a very long way away from there there are assists for the brain they're mainly in one direction so brain machine interfaces now have become pretty sophisticated they've been around for well over a decade where they've allowed quadriplegics to drink from a cup for example but the computing devices were too big to take with them outside of the lab. So companies like Neuralink are working on, you know, these portable ones that quadriplegics could have uh, in a way that they could live their normal lives outside of a lab, but they're one-way streets. So those machines are becoming very, very good at interpreting brain signals and our intents and then translating those to whatever we want. So that part is very good, but the brain uh, is not very good at interpreting any signal we give it. I mean, we can stick in electrodes and activate things, but it's not like uh, anything remotely resembling 
normal communication in a functional way. Right. We do pretty crude electrical stimulation or other forms of like transcranial, whatever, magnetic, this and that. Yeah. So their deep brain stimulation helps for certain things like Parkinson's, for example. But it doesn't transmit information. It's like a very different thing. Yeah. We're still a ways away from being able to transmit information to the brain in a way that we can perceive it as information. So maybe one day we'll get to interfaces that would allow sort of this progressive transition of who we are. Well, at the rate that things are going, Jean, because, I mean, you're right, we're not close with the digital kind of competitors, but over in computing land where people are messing with the next generation of silicon and then quantum and now even biological computing is like an idea that people have been talking about the amount of information that can be processed by biological systems and stored by biological systems. It may be that the very stuff that you are synthesizing is the computing platform of the future for these folks with the brain machine interfaces, right? I mean, it's, it's actually just like a in vivo to in vivo platform that we may find ourselves with in not too long. I mean, has it flickered across your radar yet that this may be part of where we're going? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I understand because that just sounds like what we're doing. Like, it, Well, no, it's very similar to what you're doing. Well, I mean, there's a group from Australia that I spent some time with and what they were describing was putting computational tasks into brain matter from mice and having the neurons learn what to do based on feedback that was being given directly and using basically the individual little clusters of neurons to learn how to play a game. The way that you might program an artificial intelligence system, they found, oh, the neuron is an intelligent system. You just have to give it the feedback back and forth and it figures out how to play the game. And so they were quite thrilled by this. And yes, of course, it is exactly what you're doing. You're adding, but maybe we just end up skipping that, that whole digital step. We're talking about the neural link thing as if it's like a major destination and it's just a transitional hack until we figure out how to synthesize and expand brains and perhaps fully um, replace them, I guess, incremental. Yeah. I mean, it can get very existential, but I think if you do a progressive transition where you can somehow measure your cognition, sort of your own cognition as it's transferred to, uh, you know, progressively transferred to another substrate, then I think we will get there eventually. But it almost sounds like that synthetic substrate is going to resemble more and more the normal brain substrate in its complexity. You know, synapses are not binary. There's, they come in many flavors. They come in many sizes. Everything is like very complex compared to information processing in a machine. And machines are getting better and better. Yeah, I think it, eventually it will be possible. But it's not just reproducing a similar complexity and ability to process information. It's the actual communication with the biological substrate that's going to be, I think, challenging because the brain has an immune system. It doesn't like being invaded by anything. Um, so getting a an interface that allows the fairly high volume of information transfer, um, you know, at a time scale and complexity that resembles normal human cognition, you know, maybe it's around the corner, but ah, I guess I haven't seen evidence for that yet. The space between you and me, for example, is a pretty low bandwidth interface that we've got. And somehow we're pulling off some pretty interesting computation. So maybe maybe through a narrower channel, you'd be able to mate two of these systems. Who knows? We're just thinking out loud. It's not just the communication, right? Okay, maybe that can be accomplished sooner, but it's the adoption of your of you into me. Like, 
so that, you know, if I walk away, you don't feel any different. Like, or, you know, if I disappear, you're still entirely there. But if we meld and I walk away or I disappear or die or something, half of you will be gone. You'll lose half of your consciousness, your knowledge, right? That's what we'd want to achieve if we're going to transfer to a synthetic substrate, not just, you know, communication. Right. Between two independent systems, rather, it's like we're trying to actually create an entire synthesized system that's all these bits together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're working our way there. Let me take you uh, in one final direction here to explore and move a little bit away from your direct work. You told the story of growing up and just being fascinated by aging. I don't know. It's like the origin story that uh, of a lot of researchers in the field, actually. It's quite interesting. It's like some kind of calling where people just like got catalyzed into this even at a young age. Yeah. And it's a big and dynamic field all of a sudden. It's like, I think, one of the most interesting frontier territories in science in just the popular imagination, not just in the, you know, in this in the relative isolation of, let's say, 20 years ago, where you were strange to be focused on aging. So as you look around the field, if you stepped away from the brain, like, where do you think some of the other action is apart from the work that you're doing? I mean, I'm sure many people would be envious of being at this, at your particular nexus. When you look around, like, what else do you think is amazing? What else are you really high hopes about or, or, or maybe quite worried about? I mean, with respect to life extension? Yeah, sure. In the field of aging, yeah. But just outside your own domain. Because I think that replacements, at least at the level of tissues, if not organs, are necessary. I mean, I'm super excited by what's going on in regenerative medicine with, you know, lab-grown organs. Or even like the pig heart transplant was pretty amazing. So any type of replacement is of interest to me, and it doesn't have to be biological. So I, I really am fascinated by some of these organs that are half synthetic, half bioreactors that they're testing in animal models now to like kidney replacements or fully synthetic are also, I mean, we know for the heart that's already happened, you know, their artificial hearts have been pumping blood in people for many years now. But other parts of the body, you know, obviously arms and legs, I, those are becoming better than the ones we have now. <laughs> so, you know, this is all very exciting to me. And put together, you know, if we can replace the whole body as one or in parts, we will be aging. And what's left is the brain. So we will be in control of our, you know, or more in control of how long we want to live. You can always get hit by a bus any day, right? You don't have control over those things. But at least in terms of aging, we don't have to necessarily all succumb to the horrors of aging. Even if we try to dress it up as, oh, it's not that bad. It's normal. You know, spend half an hour in a nursing home. Yeah, amazing. Wow. This is, I mean, I think you are the standard bearer in my tour of the pioneers of the field right now. I think the standard bearer for uh, the cyborg school of anti-aging. You've got your cellular folks, you've got your uh, your sort of nutri nutrition folks, but then the cyborg school, I think, absolutely deserves its uh, its fair share of attention. It's amazing. Thank you so much for spending time talking to us about your work. I mean, it's really inspiring. If I hadn't considered as seriously as I should have the possibility of simply supplementing and entirely replacing the brain. I mean, we talked about the neocortex, but every other part of the brain is also needs to be replaced. So if you think of we need 100 people working on this, you know, multiply that by a factor, you know, a few more hundred yeah. <laughs> to get it wow. to work. So it's not going to be easy, but the payoff is potentially that we aging. So I think it's worth the effort. Yeah, incredible. Thank you again. Thanks, Hamal.
It was very enjoyable. Mm-hmm.